0: What's up, everybody? My name is John Campione. I am a chiropractic physician and a Rock Tape instructor. Today, I have with me Steve Agos. Steve is a chiropractor with a special interest in pain, neurology, and movement. He's been teaching postgraduate seminars with Rock Tape since 2013. He is also an associate professor at Cleveland University in Kansas City. He's certified in Selective Functional Movement Assessment, Functional Movement Systems, Cox Technique, as well as many others. In addition to teaching for Rock Tape, Steve does technical writing of our manuals. He writes for the blog and in publications for the company as well. Steve has a special interest in CrossFit, Olympic weightlifting, kettlebells, and a lot of uh, other less traditional sports. Can't wait to ask him about that. Steve is also (laughs) currently working towards his Certified Chiropractic Sports Physician uh, Certification. And Steve, welcome. Thanks, John. Good to have you, man. Yeah, good to be here. I haven't gotten to talk to you in a while, I think. I think probably last time we saw each other was January in Mexico, right? Yep. It's that, uh, you know, that terrible. Corporate meeting, we always have on <laughs> that the beach, awful so. corporate meeting. Yeah. I think my, my favorite story about that is something you posted in the instructor page on Facebook was the conversation you have to have with your bosses. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, yeah, I got to go to this thing. And oh, where is it? Mexico. <laughs> yeah.
1: Oh, we're so close to the beach. We never actually get to see the water, though. They keep us chained to our desk, <laughs> learning yeah, the, the whole time. Uh, they're really limiting us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I don't do that, then, you know, they won't send me.
0: So. <laughs> So, Steve, I'm excited to talk to you, too, because you and I are, are very similar in a lot of things. We have a love for coffee and watches, but as well as that, we are also um, instructors at a chiropractic uh, college, so we're seeing kind of two sides of things when we talk about the postgraduate side and the courses that we see. We see docs that are out in the field and uh, some of the different uh, things that they're doing uh, with their patients, but we also see you know the green hopeful eyes of the students in school, and I, can't wait to get into talking about that with you and the similar uh, similarities and differences that you have with them. But the first question I ask have to ask all of our instructors is really how did you get into rock tape? First and foremost, when did you start using rock tape or even learning about rock tape and incorporating it into practice or your teaching?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, I started using kinesiology tape a long time ago, in very limited use. Um, I've been in clinical practice for 18 years, 11 of that's as an educator, and so before I started with Rock Tape, many years before I started with Rock Tape, I dabbled a little bit, like a lot of our instructors have, in using kinesiology tape, and it's that age-old story where the tape just wasn't doing the one thing <laughs> it's supposed to do, which is to stick to stuff, right? Stay on. So, yep. I mean, you know that's kind of where Rock Tape even started as a company is. Nothing stuck, so that's where they developed a new product so uh I wasn't that impressed with it. I also wasn't that impressed with the kind of the the I didn't have any formal training, but I'd read some manuals and stuff, and it was just like this idea of origin and insertion and strengthening things and weakening things just didn't make a whole lot of sense, mm-hmm. and the times I used it just wasn't really panning out so if we fast forward to around. It was either late 2012, maybe early 2013, um, I got contacted by Rock Tape. I was already teaching chiropractic postgraduate seminars for another company since about probably 2009 or 2010. And so I'm not sure if they had seen me teach uh, at a different different program for a different, you know, like at a chiropractic association or something or how they found out about me. Hmm. But they reached out to me and said, You know, do you want to be an instructor or want to look into being an instructor? And I had a lot of interest in that because I already kind of know how that postgraduate thing worked. And I went and audited a course and um, met Steve Capobianco, who's developed all of our courses over the years, and everything kind of clicked. And then 2013, I started teaching some courses, and uh, the rest is history, really.
0: You were one of the handpicked
1: recruited ones, huh? Uh, Yeah, I guess so, Yeah. (laughs)
0: So, uh, you know, it's so funny because no matter what, that's always what it comes down to is I was using something else. It just wasn't staying on. And I think that really drives people away from tape in general. So it's really nice to hear that people are finding rock tape as a solution for a better quality tape that stays on, you know? Um, yeah. Was, you know, the, it, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt you, John, but I mean, it's not just the tape product. It's also
1: very much the way we teach it. Mm-hmm. And uh, You know that too. So. Absolutely. Um, you know, it's, I mean, I've had people, tons of people come to courses who've had like all three levels of another company's training. And I'm sitting there going, man, you should be teaching the course. Like, what are you doing sitting in the audience? And, and, you know, you've probably heard this before too, where people say, you know, the way I learned it was so complicated. I was so afraid of like, Having somebody spontaneously explode because I didn't follow an <laughs> origin or an insertion or a lymphatic duct or I didn't wiggle the tape enough. And they're just so intimidated that they won't even use it. So, you know, yeah, there's really two things that separate us apart from a lot of other approaches. One is the product. The other is
0: definitely the, the education that we give. I've heard exactly those things too, Is it got so complicated, people just dismissed it and they, and they weren't doing it. And did, did you have that experience where you using tape and got frustrated and just said, I just won't use tape.
1: Yeah. You're and right. I wasn't using much of it. So, you know, again, I sort of dabbled in it a little bit and I, you know, between the tape, not sticking and the ideas of it, not seeming to work. It just, it was hard to convince myself to want to try to convince a patient to want to use it. And so, you know, Again, that's another thing I think we do a really good job. We provide lots of different levels of evidence for our the people who come to our seminars and we are able to to give them the confidence to even want to use it and you know anybody in healthcare knows that buy-in from your patients is important, but certainly
0: buy-in from the provider is equally as critical. absolutely, yeah, so you actually uh, are one of the authors of our manuals, or at least, uh, um, you know, from an early stage when we were implementing the paper manuals. Uh, so a lot of that information is things that you helped write. Um, so this is an interesting topic to get into when you see other taping manuals, taping textbooks, if you will, that have a lot of great detail and has to be a specific way, you know, when did it evolve for how we kind of teach our courses and how we wrote the manuals? Uh, when did it really start to kind of push away from getting into such a specific way of doing it to really getting more into how we do it now?
1: Um, you know, it's been kind of that way since I've been involved with them. So when I came on, they were trying to, you know, there's always been a real push from the people behind the scenes at Rock Tape to really separate Rock Tape from what else is out there. Yeah. And to do it in an authentic way, not just to be different or contrarian or anything like that, but just here's what's been done. Here's what we think we can do better. Yeah. So when I came on, they were using, um, you know, doing basically what everybody else did, which is send PowerPoint slides to everybody. And, you know, frankly, students do like that. People do like that. Yeah. But they really wanted to kind of, you know, Well, if anybody who's ever been to a rock tape seminar, the majority of the ones we teach, the decks, the slide decks, they don't have a lot of words in them. There's a lot of slides, but there's a lot of pictures. There's yeah. a lot of conceptual type stuff, and we've worked really hard over the years. I remember the first, the first instructor meeting before we got to go to Mexico, <laughs> there, was, there was literally five of us sitting around um, a kitchen table in the mountains in Colorado, and we were going through slide by slide. What do we think about this slide? Could we take more words off the slide? Could we add more images to it? How do we get this concept without having words on the slide? And I'm sure when you came on too, Allison was still who's kind of like the the business person at at RockTape now. She was originally involved in the the education development side of things. Yeah. She probably she probably had you read um, presentations then, right? Yeah. You know, classic book on how to get all the words off your slides. So, oh yeah. So the the challenge we had is we didn't want to just send PowerPoint slides because if it's just a bunch of pictures, it wouldn't be that useful anyway. So they said, you know, we should really try to try to write this up. And that's one of my, I guess, hobbies, if you want to call it that is writing. I do like to write. And so I did the first two taping manuals for the basic and advanced course. And then I I think I did the blade. Well, I edited the blades one. Uh, Ethan wrote most of that, but the the writing. None of those are my ideas. None of it is anything that I came up with. I was simply taking Steve's work and Ethan's work and the other collaborators, putting it together and putting it in the paragraphs and sentences and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I, I can't take any credit for you know
0: ideas or anything like that because that's all those guys. <laughs> I have to bring this up because I remember a discussion you and I had waiting to jump on the bus. We were all going out with one of those instructor meetings that we were in Denver and there was a weird term you had described to me and I don't want to call him out, but I think it was Capo. You said, emailed you something so late at night that you, told, you could tell he was tired and he described oh, some like some exercise that you were like, I have no idea what this movement is. What was the name of that exercise? Do you remember?
1: I think it was, if I remember right, there was a note on one of the slides about um, an exercise called rainbirds. Rainbirds. I I think it was rainbirds. And so, you know, we messed around, you know, we have that instructor Facebook page just for instructors and Mm -hmm. we were all goofing around and. It finally struck with him. Like, he didn't know what he was talking about either. And then it finally struck with him that he uh, he had been putting uh, in-ground sprinklers in. And I think the brand name was Rainbirds. <laughs> so when he was dictating the slide, he just happened to let it slip because he had been working on these in-ground sprinklers for, like, you know a solid week. <laughs> and so we all, you know, that was sort of the contest was to figure out, okay, what is the exercise? Rainbird. And Rainbird. Make an exercise. Who's got the best version
0: of it? And I think Did, Adam Wolf came up with something pretty good. Oh, of course it was Adam. I I, I, I got to <laughs> ask him about that because I don't remember what he came up with.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think it was Rainbird. But yeah, and there was something else too that happened. Something similar happened in the, um, when I was editing that Blades uh manual too, but I can't remember what that one was, but you know, it happens, you know, whatever you're thinking or doing sort of <laughs> streams through your consciousness. And oh God. Comes yeah. out in weird way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how did you really get into a lot of the, the technical writing? Cause you're writing, you're helping with editing, uh, and to an extent writing the manuals and, uh, the blog posts, which I don't think a lot of people actually know a lot about. And even some of the other publications, how did you really get started with uh, kind of a passion for technical writing?
1: Um, you know, mainly it was from just doing my own stuff because when I was teaching chiropractic seminars for another company, you know, I had to write my own stuff. When I was um, generating notes and things for students and courses at the, at the college, I, you know, I wrote my own stuff there too. So I've always kind of liked writing in general, even like back when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And then I've just had to make my own, you know, create my own stuff anyway. And so that was just sort of a natural thing of, you know, well, we don't want to send the slides out. What else could we do? Well, we could just write a manual. There's been talk at various times, too, between um, kind of the leaders and rock tape of writing a textbook, oh, which wow. is a whole nother animal. Like that's a whole different beast. But so we had had some conversations around that as well. So it just sort of was a natural inclination of, you know, we want these things to get written. Here's a guy who likes to write stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's give it a shot. And then um, from there, you know, once they started doing a, a bigger kind of marketing campaign as the company was growing, it just sort of bled over into, you know, three or four times a month, they'd have me write an article. Sometimes those would go on into a publication where I was basically ghostwriting it. Yeah. Other times it was just going on the blog and a lot of it was like sports specific things. Um, one of the favorite ones that I actually wrote was, I mean, there's been some like just kind of interesting ones, like one I wrote on taping for rock climbing, which I don't know anything about. So you know, <laughs> taping for like water polo is another one, which I, you know, I know what water polo is. I've watched it before, but I don't know. So it's been kind of cool to, to write some of those things because then I learn a lot about the types of injuries i wrote an article on you know yoga injuries which i didn't even know was a thing and then okay. i found out man this does really happen so it's been oh yeah but one of the favorite ones i wrote was um they needed something for uh about the fabrics and about use of synthetics and stuff so i had to dive into all this research on synthetic fibers versus natural fibers and you know i learned more about what goes into our tape after that than i had <laughs> ever known so the thing i like about writing i think is that it it forces me to do some research on yeah. stuff that I may not have like looked at otherwise. And so I'm always learning, even though I'm writing something, I'm still learning about something new. Yeah.
0: And that's a, a, always a really cool thing for me. That is very cool. i I find, you know, most people they get educated because they're either for lack of a better way of saying it required to kind of look up something or they have a passion for it too. And that's where a lot of people's knowledge come in, uh, come out of yeah. it. Yeah. I'm, Interested since you mentioned it too. I don't know if we've had kind of the opportunity to really discuss it, but you mentioned you had to research some of the materials that's found in the tape. And, you know, in, in the tips and tricks uh, section of, of the podcast, you know, I talk a lot about different things with the tape, just talked about removing tape. And I think this might actually give us a lot of information about good the goods and bads of, of tape on on the skin uh with regards to like allergic reactions and stuff like that. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about the tape materials and some of the things you might remember?
1: Yeah, the things I found out, well, just talking with the company itself, um, our tape is well, our standard tape is um, like ninety five or ninety six percent cotton hmm. at some point way back when um, like years and years and years ago, someone wrote somewhere that rock tape uses organic cotton, which we don't. So there's one time somebody put on a blog and then everybody's like, Oh man, it's organic. This is the best. And it's not exactly. So it's just, you know, conventional cotton. Yeah. But it's about 95, 96% cotton. And then the rest of the fibers to give it really the stretch that it needs is nylon. Hmm. So there's no latex in it. Um, we try to minimize the amount of synthetics in there and the, 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 Fabric industry is weird in that, like, natural fibers aren't necessarily more, um, like, more environmentally friendly, necessarily. Okay. And especially cotton. Like, cotton, to grow cotton, it takes a lot of energy. It takes a lot of water. It takes a fair amount of um, chemicals and things like that. So, you know, the, the decision on rock tape's part, and I had some conversations with uh, the people at RockTape about about this and so what it really boils down to is the choice of using natural fibers against the skin like cotton even if it is a little bit of a an industry that produces, you know, more waste than we would like mm-hmm. um, versus having synthetics. So there's some tapes on the market that are like half synthetic fibers, there's even some that are 100% synthetic and that's actually a selling point on the box at times. Okay. And what I found in doing my research for this article was that synthetic fibers against the skin—they um, almost act like a kind of like a, a, a like a really fine sandpaper, and they can abrade the skin. But they can also, for people who are kind of sensitive to them, or yeah. who maybe have other health problems, they can be hormone disruptors. Wow! Um, some of the chemicals can leach into the skin, and it's not so much the fibers themselves; it's the chemical processes that go to making them Mm -hmm. sometimes there's residual chemicals from that process still left in the material sure so the synthetic fibers themselves aren't necessarily that bad it's just they can have residues of stuff that can leach into your skin and and be hormone disruptors that i think that's probably where uh one of the newer products we have is that hemp tape
0: yeah i was just thinking about that
1: So that's uh, kind of the best of both worlds where you get the um, natural fibers, but then you also get the the much cleaner uh, environmental aspects of having hemp because hemp pretty much grows on its own. You don't have to put fertilizers on it. You don't have to put pesticides on it for the most part. So, I mean, you know, that kind of gives people the best of both worlds. So if they're environmentally conscious, but they also want to make sure they're staying away from synthetic fibers, which is not a bad idea, then Mm -hmm. we have that hemp tape, which – a lot of people really like that stuff. That's great tape.
0: People are really liking that too. And hemp, if if I remember correctly, is is quite strong. Yeah, I think you know I don't uh, I'm not a hemp farmer,
1: but I think it's <laughs> you know strong, stronger than cotton, and um, you know grows like crazy, and you know it's super easy to maintain. I mean, once you plant it, it basically just grows itself.
0: Is my understanding of it. Yeah, and that hemp tape is uh, available now. I don't know. I haven't seen like a bulk roll of it. But um, the hemp tape does obviously come in the standard rolls. And, you know, for anybody who has any kind of reaction with tape, that's kind of like what Steve w- w- was mentioning is, is, you know, you might have different – you're going to have different sensitivities of the skin obviously too. So having a variety of different uh, types of tape is always nice because it's not that – oh, it's the tape on my skin. It really irritates it. Well, it could be, you know, that batch. It could be, you know, that particular, uh, cotton or nylon blend for you or that part of the body. Maybe try the hemp tape. Maybe try something with less glue or something like that with the RX tape.
1: Yeah. And I don't think, um, I don't think they bleach it or color it or do anything. And I, you know, you brought up another point with like a, a bad batch, you know, once in a while people talk about, man, I bought this box of tape and people have been reacting to it and stuff. And it's my understanding of the manufacturing process that the glue is always the same. Mm-hmm. The fabric is always the same. The only variable really is what's going into the dyes and the color. Okay. And so one of the things, as I was writing this article, I was thinking about, you know, how come some people can use, you know, 10 rolls of black tape, it never gives them a problem, and then they use the 11th roll, and that one's a problem. Sure. And I think, you know, if you probably put a lot of these colors side by side and really looked at them, I bet you you're seeing some variations and I don't know, I have no basis to say this, but I have a, just based on like hearing people talk and people come into courses and seeing what gets posted on the rock tape discussion groups on Facebook, it seems like the black tape, if people are going to have like a skin reaction to it or quote, a bad batch, mm-hmm. it always seems to come back to black. Yeah. And I wonder if, um, and I don't know, I mean, this company would have statistics on that, but I mean, that just, that's been my impression. And I can assume that. The, whatever goes into the color, you know, dyeing that fabric black is somewhat variable. And I wonder if sometimes when people have like a, a skin reaction, it's not from the tape itself. It's not from the adhesive, but it might be from the whatever dyes they used, you know, on that batch to, to color yep. it would be my guess. So,
0: it's you know, so I'm int- getting
1: pretty geeky with that stuff. But I mean, <laughs> That's kind of the theory that I've had for a while. And it kind of explains why people can use a ton of tape and then all of a sudden they just get a bad roll. And like variable in that roll would be whatever they used to color it with, I guess. Sure.
0: Yeah. And it's weird because people get into discussions of like logo versus non logo design. Um, you know, I've, I've actually had people come up to me and been like, you know, the, uh, the, the tattoo print seems to uh, always cause a reaction. And I'm like, I I don't have an explanation for that. So I can't, I can't, I can't definitively get behind that because again, it, it really does depend on a lot of factors and I can speak for myself and I'm sure there's people out there listening to this who, who would agree or have had the same experience, I should say, um, Different parts of the body, different parts of my body, have different uh, reactions. So, like under oh, yeah. under the arm, different kind of skin than, say, you know, the back of the leg. I tend yeah. to have a little bit of a reaction when I pull off the tape a little bit too aggressively. I can tell you a story from uh, a couple weekends ago, um, and this is something to think about when you have a reaction to tape. Is I got I was I was on. A seminar I was uh, teaching in Dallas and I got sick on Saturday night. Um, not very, not very fun uh, that Saturday night. And I had tape, I actually put tape on after I was trying to tape some um, lymphatic watersheds to help kind of drain some congestion out of my head and stuff, try to feel better basically. And I was using purple, uh, happened to be pre cut. Um, so I don't know if that factored into it, but I had the worst reaction to the tape where I laid it down than I've ever had anywhere and it huh. was on like just under the collarbone and, and, and on the abdomen and I had those lines really itchy really red I've never ever had a rea- reaction like that so how I was feeling what was going on in my body could also have played a factor to that too so there's a oh, lot of, yeah. there's a ton of science that goes into how the tape is manufactured and how it works with it but you know the best part about this is is I hear those stories very, very rarely, when someone right. has uh, a bad reaction to the tape, and I think what you had said about the sy- synthetic versus our, our cotton nylon blend is is totally true we 're going to have more reactions with a sy- synthetic tape than we w- would with this tape and you know when you have the occasional reaction, we can you know make modifications on it, and maybe find a different color, maybe find a different uh, um, rock tape rx or the h2 o and see if that yeah. has a better result to it. Well, the body's so
1: complicated too, you know, in our notes on the the cautions and contraindications page, you know, one of the things that people always wonder about is it'll talk about female hormone cycle for Mm. menstruating females. And that's just something that came out, you know, the more seminars we were teaching, the more we would have people report things like... Um, you know, I've used tape all the time, no problem. And then I just happened to use it and had a bad reaction to it. Yeah. Most of the people who have those sudden reactions tend to be, you know, what we were finding is it tended to be females and there tended to be some sort of link to where they were on their menstrual cycle. And Mm so, you know, skin is not independent of everything else. So it's gonna, great point. Anybody who's, I mean, there's a lot of hormonal things, you know, male and female that affect skin. So, yeah. you know, I think an immune system, you know, if you already had an immune system reaction going and then you put tape on, that's going to be a different condition than if you're yeah. feeling well and you put tape on, and yeah. depending on, you know, how your thyroid's working, what your adrenal glands are doing, you know, I mean, so all those things factor into
0: to what happens when we put that tape on. Yeah. That's a really interesting thing to think about. It's not to say don't put tape on when you're having you know, an illness or during oh, yeah. during a hormone cycle or anything like that. But this is why we stress so much. And I, I've talked to all of, of the instructors at a certain time, is just you have to do like patch test stuff. Yep. And it's like movement. You have to look at movement in very specific environments sometimes. You kind of have to look at tape sometimes in specific environments. There might be a time where maybe it's not right to tape because you might have a reaction depending on what's going on in your body. Do we, do we know that definitively? Not necessarily. So that's why, you know, patch test, try it out. See, see what works. Right. Yep. We're getting so excited with the nerd talk. Your dog's getting excited too, man. Yeah, they bark if they
1: hear anything outside, if anybody comes up to the door, so I wanted to do this from work, but you know the irony of being at work is we have wired internet, and I'd have to stand in the hallway by one of the classrooms to get Wi-Fi, so... That would
0: be an interesting conversation. I, I knew the trade-off
1: would either be getting heckled by students the whole time, or having my dog <laughs> screaming in the background, so, you
0: know. Awesome. Very cool. So... Let's get back to kind of uh, your history, Steve. And you said you were doing some uh, Cairo seminars before. Were you already teaching at uh, Cleveland, Kansas City, when you were doing these post-grad seminars? Yeah. So my
1: undergrad degree is in teaching. Even when I was in high school, I knew at some point in my life I wanted to be a teacher. Hmm. Um, You know, just that whole idea of, like, learning and teaching and um you know the ongoing, that ongoing like kind of lifelong learner you know thing sure. really resonated with me so even in high school i knew i wanted to teach in some capacity so awesome um my undergrad degrees in chemistry teaching and then i went straight to chiropractic school uh, after doing that so
0: what got you to want to go to chiropractic school with with that uh with that passion
1: well i had a um when i was in college my girlfriend at the time her father was an administrator at palmer college of chiropractic oh okay I, did a, I, I was about two years into, into college. I didn't know exactly kind of what path I wanted to go on. So I went and talked to a uh, guidance counselor, and they had me take a test where it basically spit out what your ideal types of um, careers would be. And it gave me two options. One was interior design, okay, and I have no idea why, and the <laughs> other one was um, chiropractic. And I went, well, you know, I know absolutely nothing about that. Uh And so I had, I had this unique opportunity to talk to my girlfriend's dad about it. And the whole idea of like natural healing, the body heals itself, all those sorts of things really resonated. So that really clicked too. And, you know, anybody who's a good healthcare provider knows that it's a lot of teaching, you know, you can't be a good doctor or a good provider of any type without doing a lot of education. So that was kind of a natural fit, even though, um, you know, it was a different type of teaching than I thought, but the yeah. long-term goal was always to get back onto the education side of things. So I started with Cleveland in 2007 after having been in private practice for about seven years. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that's how I ended up on the, you know, that education side of things.
0: What were you teaching?
1: What's that? What were you teaching? When I first started at Cleveland? Yes. Yeah. So I started as, well, I actually started as a clinician. So I was on the clinic floor and I was supervising students. So I was doing clinical education. Okay. And then from there I took over a technique class. And then from there I also, I have a pretty deep interest in chiropractic history and in history in general. So I started teaching the history course and then, you know, just kind of, you know, the nice thing about Cleveland is it's a small school Mm -hmm. and they have people kind of do a lot of different things. So over the years I've taught various courses and stuff, but I'm, I have a couple technique classes, and I have a history course. And earlier this summer, I um, uh, went away from just being strictly faculty, and I'm also the assistant dean of chiropractic education at the university now. So they keep me pretty busy doing all sorts of stuff.
0: That's pretty cool. Um, A lot of interesting stuff there. You say you have a passion for chiropractic history, and I know just because I teach at a chiropractic school right now is – a lot of students, they really kind of overlook the history that comes from uh, uh, our profession as chiropractors, and that's an important class to really look at kind of where we all came from.
1: Yeah, it can be. It gives a lot of context to kind of where we're at. You know, it's that old adage that if you don't know your history, you can't, you know, avoid the mistakes of history. And I don't know if there's yeah. tons of mistakes, but I give students a lot of perspective. So many people within our profession are sort of like... Um they have this sort of weird thing where they're not as proud to be the kind of healthcare provider as they ought to be. And so I think a big part of my class really focuses on, you know, here's where chiropractic came from. Here's why you should be proud to be a chiropractor. And, you know, I really try to get students thinking about, you know, what they can do for people rather than should they have gone to medical school or osteopathic school or physical therapy school. At the end of the day, you know, the only
0: thing that matters is if you're helping people. So that's a great point. Yeah, your your patient's results. Do you want to maybe uh, do a little stand and deliver and give us some of that? And first for those chiropractors out there,
1: <laughs> boy, I'd have to start from day one. And there's no elevator the speech for that. My, no, I don't have an elevator speech on that one. <laughs> it's all
0: subtle programming from the first day of class to the last. Excellent. <laughs> So, what's very interesting is you have a, a very unique perspective in education because of the background that you gave us. You're you're seeing chiropractic students, and are you uh, is is Cleveland on trimesters semesters?
1: Yeah, we're on trimesters, so we go year round, and we're on okay. like a basically like a 15 week term. So it's a oh yeah, same nationally. It's yeah. not it's not as compressed as some. Like I've talked to people who are in medical school or osteopathic school, and they're even mm-hmm. a little differently compressed where they, you know, they have these like um, these kind of pods where they like learn everything about the heart from, you know, anatomy all the way out to treating it and stuff. And so, um, you know, it's an interesting students always say they wish they had, you know, two semesters and had the summer off, but I'm like, man, if you had three months off, it'd be so hard to get back into it. So I really think the year round school works good for a lot of the professions because otherwise
0: that break would just be a killer. Uh, It's so interesting. You mentioned that I was just watching a show last night about how summer break is actually very detrimental for education with what they call the summer slide. And, uh, it mentions other countries use year round school, but with, with more frequent, smaller breaks. And I'm like, Oh, that's just like what we had in chiropractic school. And I'm like, that is actually much more beneficial. You know, we go for 15 weeks uh, with the school I went to. And then again, we get uh, about two weeks off. And every now and then during school, like, uh, uh, like Christmas break, there was one time I got four weeks off. So it was nice to kind of have that month off.
1: Yeah. I've never, I've never thought about the, uh, you know, the summer slides. I've never really had it. So yeah, but yeah. that, that, that's definitely gotta be a bummer for, you know, people who are, especially in this program where it's like so much builds from every year, every course builds on the next one, you know? So yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, it's important. I mean, if, if that w- w- existed, uh, in the chiropractic school, then, you know, that would, that probably would be quite a hindrance. Cause I always tell my students, your, your education is cumulative. Cause I always, I coin that phrase for myself just because I always get, is this going to be cumulative? And like everything yeah. you learn is cumulative, but right. that's where you're going to have students who are going to forget, you know, what we learned the last semester that they absolutely need for this semester right here. Yeah. So yeah, how does it, compare when you're teaching these graduate students, you know, you're, you're probably teaching from first try all the way. I mean, you have experience teaching in, in the clinic, so you're teaching all the way to graduating students. How does that evolution of education compare to when you're teaching, say some of the postgraduate courses, like you had been uh, in the past and then the rock tape courses that you're teaching? Right. So the,
1: you know, interestingly, I don't think our
0: postgraduate
1: courses are a whole lot different than the way you would teach um, like a symposium or something like that at a college. Because what I'm saying is that we have like you'll have people of, you know, who've been out for a year, you'll have students there, you'll have people who've been in practice for 40 years, you'll have mm-hmm. a variety of different healthcare providers, you'll have people who are not healthcare providers at all, they might be personal trainers or things like that at our courses. Mm-hmm. So I will say from, you know, from personal experience of having gone to a million seminars over the years and also from having taught, you know, very material, you know, our education is really unique in the postgraduate world for a couple of reasons. And, you know, the people who developed that at rock tape should be really proud of themselves because absolutely, the the education itself is really good the amount of information and the way we deliver that information in courses is really good um the ability to take really complicated material and make it work for massage therapists students personal trainers doctors of all types uh, you know i've never seen anything where you could get Ten different types of providers in the room of different levels, and they all walk out of there going, "Yeah, I know what that person was talking about."
0: That's a good point.
1: Um, You know, we we have a way of taking something really technical and making it really easy and digestible for everybody. Um, And you know, the fact is, too, a lot of people go to postgraduate seminars and they expect a big sales pitch. They expect um, a teaser course where you don't really teach anybody anything, and you hope that they come to the next one, (laughs) and then level three, and then level four, and then level ten, and Recertify every two months, and you know you've been down that. Road. Oh yeah. So, oh my you know, gosh. Rock tape is really unique in that, like, I and mean, we really give a valuable seminar, and that you know that's reflected on the, in the evaluations. You know, people love the instructors, people love the content, people love the products. You know, anymore you go to teach a seminar, and half the people are already wearing rock tape apparel and stuff like that. Yeah. They've already been buying stuff from the company. So I mean, it's a really. Um, it's just a really special experience that they've put together and they've worked really hard at it. Having worked with Steve Capobianco, you know, a fair amount over the years, like that's not by accident that that's happened. Like they, you know, they said, this is, this is what's out there. This is what we want. Here's how we can get there. And uh, I, you know, they've achieved a really cool thing. So, you know, the difference in school would be that, you know, if you have everybody who's at a certain level, you know, you kind of teach to that level, but You know, there's really not that much difference. And, you know, our our courses are just so well designed. If anything, you know, there's been times where I've looked at my own course material going, how could I make this more like a a rock tape thing and less like a, you know, average college class? So, you know, my PowerPoint started getting less wordy. I started using more pictures, you know, so there's a nice you know, back and forth and both of those things. You
0: know, we say it all the time. uh, We tell a story and, and I tell, I tell participants in seminars too, is, you know, every now and then I peek, I snuck in one extra slide because the way I wanted to tell this story, I just needed something else. Or maybe I just shifted the order of two slides just so like if you're following along with your PowerPoints, don't get too freaked out with that. But it's how I tell the story. And what you said right there really, really uh, resonated with me is is that's how we should be teaching. We're telling these stories and we're explaining how all this stuff works. And it shouldn't be just reading off of those slides. And every now and then you get something where it's like, this is an awesome quote. I'm not even going to try to summate it. I'm going to read it right off the slide. But then you go into the sea squirt picture, or you look at the helmsman of the ship picture, and we're trying to explain, you know, how this brain functions and why it's so important and then how that relates back to everything with tape. It's, it's really not like, all these students can just read out of the book or the slides themselves. They're there for the the story. They want to know all this education from that.
1: Yeah. And I've seen probably 10 different instructors with rock tape teach, you know, either their full course or, portions of a course and every single person teaches it slightly different. Yeah, but but it's the same material. yeah, Yeah, everybody who walks out of one of those courses has the same information. It's just, and I think that's another really cool thing is instead of them saying, okay, here's the script and you read that, it's, you know, here's the material, here's the key concepts, how you get from point A to point B might differ a little bit, but at the end of the day, all the students who go to, you know, I don't know, hundreds, if not thousands of courses every year. Yeah are walking out with the same
0: information which is really cool thing yeah but such a unique perspective to it as well too which is you know kind of a big reason why i started the podcast to really introduce all these different instructors so that everybody can kind of get a feel for them and be like hey i I like kind of like how they're viewing things or how they look at things and we can you know go see them or something like that so A question I have all the time, again, because I teach uh, at a chiropractic college and then teaching for Rock Tape, is there is um, an interesting thought process that I find with a chiropractic student in that there is... I I don't want to say this in a disparaging way to anybody, but a lot of chiropractic students I've noticed in my own experience, they really depend on the information that's taught at weekend seminars, and I've, I've not necessarily seen as much value given to what they're learning in school. Um, Do you kind of see that happening where you're teaching is where you see a lot of students, they're really reveling and going to a lot of weekend seminars and these technique courses. And then they go back to school during the week and they go, Oh, why do I need to kind of know this stuff?
1: Yeah, there is, that is a big, that's kind of a big struggle all the time for educators. Sure. Um, You know, for me, it's, how can we make well? Here, so here's the thing, and the best way I can boil that down is there's really two things that happen in college, uh, university setting. We have an obligation to, um, much like our rock tape courses, be at least evidence informed, have some biological plausibility, mm-hmm. give people you know uh, as accurate of a picture, and give as much substantiation to that as we can. Yeah, at a weekend seminar. You know, no offense to anybody who teaches those, but, you know, they have, because I do them myself, but there's no obligation for them to really follow those same rules. Yeah. And so they can talk about miracle after miracle after miracle. They can talk about the millions of dollars they're making, you know, every five minutes. They can talk about all these things that
0: I've been to those courses.
1: For somebody like you or me who has perspective and has a, you know, pretty, pretty working sniff test. You know, we can see through that and go, well, you know, come on, give me a break. (laughs) And students just can't see, you know, they don't have the perspective to see through that. Um, So they tend to believe a lot of things they shouldn't necessarily believe. The other thing that happens is I think seminars do a better job of um, kind of making an emotional connection for students. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they spend more time on how it feels to be at the seminar, the experience of actually being at the seminar and things like that, whereas most teachers in a classroom are going to focus on giving information. You know, it's information and they get excited about information. But if you ask somebody, you know, what gave you a feel good experience, it's not going to be the information. It's going to be a story somebody told, or it's going to be an emotional thing that happened or, you know, a miracle story that somebody told. And, you know, college teachers just aren't good at that. So it really boils down to the giving of information versus like the giving of a emotional experience and you know colleges really are focused on information and they should be you know if we just went into every class and told stories about you know the one you know n of one patient then Hmm. you know i mean that's important to a certain regard but at the end of the day students have to understand what the reality is and that you know you have to know you have to know what you know when you need to know it, and you have to take your studies seriously. You have to take, you know, the stuff that seems boring seriously because that's what you're really going to be using. Somebody else's feel-good story about a miracle that may or may not have happened, um, you know, yeah. isn't going to really help them when it's time to, to to help a patient. And that's what being in healthcare is all about. How many people can you really help?
0: Yeah, I, I feel it sets a foundation. That's why I try to tell my students all the time: it's like, don't get disparaged, don't get upset that you're not learning. This stuff in school because you need to set a foundation, and when you go to these weekend seminars, that foundation is going to help you understand how that stuff is actually going to work.
1: Yeah, and you know the the thing we've been looking at or noticing recently too is that there's a, a FOMO kind of thing, the fear of missing out. Mm. And a lot of students think they have to know everything when they walk out of school and they're smart enough to recognize that in a, you know, a doctoral level program, they're not going to be fed everything they need to know. But there's this idea that they need to know literally everything, you know, all have all the certifications and all the techniques have, you know, SFMA and FMS and have DNS and to have weightlifting DNS and yoga DNS and, you know, that they will fail with their student or fail with their patients Mm -hmm. because they're not walking out of school with that. And, you know, the basic education that people get is plenty if they're using it properly to do really good work with, with people. And, you know, they look at teachers or people like that and go, well, these people are really smart. They have all these tools they can do stuff with, but they forget that, you know, in my case, I've been accumulating that knowledge for 18 years. Like I did not walk out of school knowing what I know today. Great point. Nor, nor could I have ever. And I think with, you know, between the internet and social media and, you know, making the world smaller, everybody kind of looks, you know, that grass is greener on the other side thing is just even more prevalent where, yeah, oh man, this person went to the seminar and it's a game changer. And, you know, but the majority of patients need pretty basic care and respond really well to it. So, you know, I think that's, uh, that's just sort of a, a cultural thing, this fear of missing out, having to know everything. There's this idea, I think, a very strong cultural shift in our country too about um, like a literal fear of failing or a literal fear of not being the best at something that paralyzes people. And, you know, the unfortunate reality in healthcare is you learn as much and you help as many people from your failures as you do from your successes. And that's just natural, you know. That's very
0: well said, yeah. I mean, you can't learn unless you fail to an extent. And maybe that's the word that's really bothering people. But if I get something wrong, guess what? I learned something. Now I I know, oh, that's the right answer. That's the right way to do things. Or There's a different way to try this. And now I at least know that uh, there's one way that didn't work on how to uh, treat that patient. Right. Yep. So very cool. Very cool, so Steve i gotta get into uh really some more important stuff than all that technical clinical stuff is uh your love of coffee. <laughs> I am a huge coffee fan myself, and uh you actually do you am I correct in remembering that you actually are kind of involved in like brewing up some of your own coffee and
1: yeah you have a, a very yeah, cool done, hobbies Well, you know, we don't have kids. so that, <laughs> become a hobbyist that's and, how you, you know do I've it. <laughs> always been one of those I've always been one of those um people who's interested in a little bit of everything but yeah. you know and so you know I shift from hobby to hobby and stuff like that sure. but um yeah I've always been a coffee drinker and enjoyed it but uh probably three about three years ago um I was just mainly from Instagram, you know, I was popping around on Instagram. So I'm a very visual person and I like photography. So Instagram's kind of like my favorite uh, social media thing. And um, I just noticed that there's not a lot of like, um, not a lot of writing on coffee, like not a lot of like reviews on coffees and mm. information shared about how things tasted or how things were and stuff. And because I do like to write, I sort of had, you know, this idea of like, trying to write every day or almost every day in some capacity, but it's hard to come up with ideas. I'm not like a fiction writer or things like that. So I was probably subconsciously um, inspired by Tim Szymanski, who's another one of our instructors. And he's had this um, vlog, a YouTube channel for a million years that he, he does a video every single day. So yeah, doc. it was kind of one of those things where I went, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do this every day. And I just started writing about, you know, I I do a little bit of coffee roasting and go to cafes and I was just sharing my experiences just for something to do. I mean, it's just an excuse to take some pictures and be creative and to do a little bit of writing every day. Uh, And then people started sending me coffee and then, you know, it really expanded into something that a few years later I'm still doing. The irony of uh, this obsession with coffee is that I can't really drink that much. Like I'm good for maybe like, couple of espressos a day or a couple cups of coffee but after that i'm wired and i can't function so (laughs) i have to be really judicious with my uh with my coffee allowance
0: i'm the same way yeah and i love coffee so much i could drink it all day long but i know i can't
1: yeah i could too but i would be non-sleeping it uh you know could be bad news so
0: (laughs) so you're still doing a lot of uh, is it mostly instagram posts and then kind of just uh putting giving your opinion on that
1: You know, for a long time, when it comes to coffee for a long time, I was writing like four or five reviews per day or per week, um, which is takes about two hours to put one of those together. So, you know, I was getting up super early and doing all this stuff. And then when my job responsibilities changed over the summer, I slowed way down. So I'm probably doing it once or maybe twice a week if I have, you know, when I'm on a break or something like that, I can crank out a little more content. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on Instagram, and if I, you know, drink something that looks like coffee, it's gonna get its picture taken and posted
0: on Instagram. So, <laughs> you know, how that goes. You say it looks like coffee, like there's a couple instances where you, <laughs> where you found yeah, out the yeah. bad way.
1: Just some some mud water. <laughs>
0: The other thing, Steve, that uh, I've noticed a lot of your different posts is you're getting into um, uh, a little bit more of the pain science realm, or I should say, more into the the pain science realm with some of the courses that you're taking for yourself. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff you're studying now?
1: Yeah, a few years ago, I went to Explain Pain from the um, Neuroorthopedic Institute. Yeah. Yeah, Laura Mermosley and David Butler. I attended. You know, I've. I'd been dabbling and like watching their videos on YouTube and just looking at their concepts for a year or so prior to that. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I flew up to Chicago and took one of their courses. And that was really good. The only thing that I was left sort of wanting is that the Explain Pain course that I went to was a lot of science and a lot of like breaking it down into things that people can understand. But they don't really tell you how to make it work clinically. Okay. And so I was really into that. Um, the reason being, in that I still see patients, uh, I was seeing patients three afternoons a week. Now, because of my responsibilities, I'm down to one afternoon a week. Uh, but for the last 11 years, I've seen patients in basically what's a free clinic setting um, in Kansas City. Uh, We're one of the country's pretty big, uh, you know, one of the largest uh, federally qualified health centers. But we started as a free clinic. And so I see a lot of chronic pain patients. I see a lot of people with a lot of like other health issues, not all of which are physical. Mm-hmm. Uh, people who are under the stresses of not having jobs, not having homes, in some cases, not having access to healthcare in all the cases. So my my clinical work sort of forced me into learning more about these types of patients. I think I've always been pretty good at handling those kind of patients, mainly because I'm a patient person with people. Mm-hmm. I like to learn about people. I like to, you know, it's very easy for me to sort of put myself in other people's shoes and be patient with them. Yeah. And that's a number one requirement in dealing with those kind of patients. And so, yeah, I did the explain pain course. And then earlier this year I did the, um, uh, what are they called? Uh, Adrian Lowe's group, the international spine and pain Institute, yeah. which are located in Iowa. They have live courses. They also have some online courses, So I did their online course on therapeutic neuroscience education, which is basically the same exact material as explain pain because all these guys are using the same research. So it's the same basic material, but they do a really good job uh, explaining how to integrate that into a practice. And so they give you, they're big on like, you know, in order to inform and educate a patient, you have to tell stories like we've been talking about today. Um, And they actually give you, They don't give you scripts, but they say, here's the the way we've made these stories work. This is the story you tell on the first visit. This is the story you tell on the second visit. Here's the third visit story. And you don't have to use those same stories, but it gives you an idea of how to educate people through storytelling, how to make things, because people aren't going to understand ion channels. Sure. But if you talk about what an ion channel does in terms of a metaphor, they're going to get it. And patients are much smarter than a lot of people give them credit for. So I've been really into that. And you know, one of the things that we try to do, um, or that I certainly try to do is if my institution sends me somewhere and spends money on, you know, educating me, I try to give that back to other people. So, you know, that's something that's kind of lacking in modern health education in general. So I had an opportunity when I was taking that course, I had an opportunity to, um, have a couple hours with some PT students at a local program and talk to them about it. And they really liked it. And then I taught a couple just like, after-school sessions for our students, and they loved it. And now I've had a couple opportunities to teach it on the postgraduate level. So it's just one of those things that I have a lot of experience with and um, now I'm starting to pick up my formal education with. But, man, they're a complex kind of patient. And um, for those people who don't deal with chronic pain patients and can still make a living, like more power to you guys. Sure,
0: Yeah. Uh, I mean, that stuff, uh, just really coincides with everything that we're doing, uh, with rock tape and in the blades courses. Cause it, 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 we, I mean, we took a lot from that same research, right?
1: Yeah, very much. Yeah. All those, you know, low threats, you know, manage threat, educate patients to get buy-in that's all biopsychosocial stuff. And that's all what that explained pain and therapeutic neuroscience education is all about all that
0: yeah really good example of just how everything works together you know it's not to stop doing one thing in your practice to do something else it's all working together yeah
1: and you know in rock tape too it's you know this biopsychosocial world is kind of interesting in that there's more so on the physical therapy side of things than i would say the chiropractor side of things Mm -hmm. Um, there's this real push into those psycho and the social where there's a pretty decent sized group of physical therapists who really don't even touch their patients anymore and it's all education it's all you know cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff like that and they're getting way away from you know the biomechanical biomedical biological side of things and the important thing to remember is that it's bio it's psycho and it's social yeah. so you know the rock tape courses are cool because we're still you know we're still addressing the, the, the biological part of it, but we're also putting it in the context of, you know, making patients feel safe, having buy-in from patients mm-hmm. and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, I think it's a big mistake for, for, you know, manually oriented therapists to get away from that. Cause that's what patients expect. Yeah. Um, you know, patients do well with it. You know, I was pretty solidly a mechanic for most of my practice mm-hmm. and patients do really good with it. Yeah. So You know, it's, it's important to not, you know, I think people tend to overreact when they're first learning the biopsychosocial stuff, because it gives you those other two pieces of the puzzle and you get so excited about that. But man, if you're not putting your hands on every patient and, you know, doing that work, you're missing a third of the job, you know, at least so.
0: That's a really important point is like this is uh, I guess you could say fairly new uh, type of perspective to, to look at but yeah, we can't overlook all three aspects of it because that's why it's all put together as the biopsychosocial models you can't just really do everything you need to do necessarily with the social aspect or the psycho or the bio putting it all together is really the biggest effect you can have
1: Yeah, absolutely and it's you know, it's making the information work for the patient you know if you take an x-ray, and you see a gnarly hip, and you say, well, your hip's degenerated, it's falling apart, it's grinding around in there, you're screwed, you know, that's not a responsible healthcare practitioner anyway. (laughs) So, you know, a big part of the biopsychosocial stuff is, you know, really just being a responsible healthcare provider, using testing, using therapies, using everything responsibly, and, you know, getting away from Fear tactics and things like that that I think a lot of healthcare providers have kind of relied on great point. to get patients to to motivate patients. But if anything, fear doesn't really motivate people, it unmotivates them. If you you know, if you throw the do a postural exam of somebody and throw the kitchen sink at them and say, Man, you're terrible. Everything sucks. You you know, why are you so weird looking? Like people are gonna walk <laughs> out of there going, Yeah, you know, well, there's so much wrong with me, I shouldn't even try to help
0: anything. Yeah, oh, so, yeah. good
1: point. You know that's a. I think a big part of just understanding biopsychosocial is just understanding that it's not. You know, it's not all physical, but that doesn't mean it's mental either. It's you know, we just have a. We have every culture has got its own um, relationship with pain, and American culture is kind of weird in our relationship with pain. So that makes our jobs a little more challenging as healthcare providers. Uh, But you know, if a patient comes in with a certain expectation, and you flip the table on them and you don't even touch them and you just have a chat and you talk about, you know, what happened in their past and things like that, you know, their threat level is going to go up because they expected to be touched and they expected an adjustment or expected a massage or whatever. And, you know, so that's, it's an interesting way to look at that when you, when you understand how important threat level is um, and you do something that's way different than what the person thought you were going to do, you know, you're not managing that threat level
0: very well. Very well said. Yeah. It's such an important thing to, to look into because it plays a very important role in someone's physiology. So their bio is affected by their psycho, their psycho is affected by social and vice versa. It's, it's a cycle. That's why it works like that. Yep. So Steve, it's kind of the end of the year. Uh, so, but I'll ask the question anyways, uh, where are you going to be, uh, next if you're traveling? anytime soon yeah i i barely
1: travel for rock tape anymore once in a
0: while i can take on well
1: so far i've only done one vine tour that worked on my break schedule because i have so much going on during the week and i really need to be uh at the university when i'm supposed to be there they you know it's hard to like leave in the middle well it's impossible to leave in the middle of the week yeah. I have classes every day <laughs> um and then the weekends are you know, ever since we changed to doing the two eight-hour days for our taping seminars, yeah. it's real hard to get back, you know, in time for work on at eight thirty on Monday morning kind of thing. I know so it. <laughs> a few years ago, I kind of wound down on on traveling much for rock tape. Mm-hmm. If I can take an odd vine tour here or there, I'll probably try to do that. But otherwise, I'm just teaching at um, at Cleveland University in Kansas City. And for next year, we're done for this year as far as rock tape stuff. But for next year, we're going to be doing a Rock Pods course in February. And then I think we're doing a Blades course. Blades course is either in May or September. And then taping course is either May or September. So we're just going to try to hit one of each. In the past, we've always done two per year. Um, This year, we're going to experiment with adding the Rock Pods and Floss class in and then just do one of each on campus. Kansas City's somewhat lucky in that we are kind of right in the middle of the country, yeah, and so we get a lot of Vine tours going through, if not right through Kansas City, then within forty-five minute drive of Kansas City. Mm-hmm. Then they, pro- I bet you, Vine comes through here probably every month. Oh, cool. And so you know, yeah, I mean, there's tons of rock tape stuff in the area. So if it doesn't work at the school, then it certainly, you know, Vine is through here all the time. So we're a little bit saturated in this area. So that's why we're cutting back a little bit, but. We have so many instructors and so many instructors who are trying to uh, really augment their their um, their living with teaching for rock tape that you know it'd be silly to try to work five days a week and then go out two days and you know be consistent with that I did that for a long time sure. but uh, you know business travel starts to it catches where, up yeah, on me <laughs> quick, you know. My students are always like, "Oh man, you're going somewhere cool. You're gonna go party," and I'm like, "No, no. <laughs> I'm gonna
0: go teach, and then I'm gonna lay down and drink tea, mm-hmm. and then I'm gonna hopefully be able to teach the next day too." Yeah, I try to tell myself like, "Hey, go do one thing at the place you're going to," and that one yeah. thing ends up being lay in my hotel watching television. <laughs> yep. I, yeah, I I can even read books sometimes. It's like, no, my brain is just completely fried. I don't even think I can do my readings or anything like
1: that. Yeah, yeah. When we do the when we do the uh, the Taping courses; those two eight-hour days. I mean, my voice is just barely hanging on by the end of that second day. So yeah. I pretty much try to, if I do do something, I try to do something that doesn't involve talking to anybody. Which, <laughs> you know,
0: yeah. So, and Cleveland University is in Overland Park, Kansas, right? Yes. Okay, so just outside Kansas City, that's that's nice that you can kind of have everybody uh, coming towards you, about three courses uh, on campus, and welcome to anybody. You don't have to be a chiropractic student there, obviously, but uh, that's a place to find Steve throughout the year, one of the uh, uh, few places that he will definitely uh, be at with all three of those courses, and that's kind of our uh, current um Uh, curriculum if you include everything all together we've got the blades course we've got the new rock pods rock floss and then we've got the taping courses so you can head to kansas city and get all three of them done throughout the year and and go see steve steve where can we find you on social media
1: um well if you're interested in the healthcare side of things (laughs) then it's dr steve agos on instagram so it's d-r-s-t-e-v-e and then my last name is weird it's a-g-o-c-s so dr steve agos for that, if you're interested in coffee, then it's KC Coffee Geek on Instagram, also. So, you know, I know one of the things that fuels healthcare is coffee. So, for those people who are <laughs> wanting to expand their consciousness when it comes to all things dark and liquidy, then they can find me there too. So,
0: <laughs> so that's how you find Steve, and please go check out Steve on Instagram. A um, lot of great posts up there, and uh, definitely, I, I didn't know you had the coffee. Uh, uh, handle on there. I was just kind of oh, looking yeah. at your yeah. your Dr. Steve uh, handle for coffee posts and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, no, I've got like um, I don't know. I, I it fluctuates every day, but I've got like seventy two hundred followers on the coffee side of things. Nice. So people- Appreciate me more as a coffee person than they do as a healthcare provider. Which <laughs> that's all right. That's okay. <laughs> Whatever helps. It's that biopsychosocial thing plays so a role into it, coffee yeah. Makes people feel good. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: I'm good with that.
0: We'll definitely check it, check out Steve at any of the courses uh, at uh, Cleveland University in Kansas City. Check out Steve on Instagram, Dr. Steve Agos, uh, and uh, at KC Coffee Geek. And Steve, thank you so much for taking the time, man. That was a great conversation. All right, John. Thanks. All right. Take care.